It's a bird. It's a plane. It's everything's relative podcast. Hey, everyone. How's it going? What are you doing? Were you trying to understand the current global phenomenon of non-parental experiences? Well, you've come to the right place. This is Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis. That's me. I'm your host. This is the place to be for people who have experienced big DNA surprises, like really, really big ones. And you know what's making this a phenomenon and not just a freak occurrence happening every once in a while to a friend of a friend who you used to know, direct-to-consumer DNA kits. Yep, that's right. 23andMe and Ancestry DNA is making it so family secrets are popping up as easily as, say, an email, or as quickly as a phone call, or a found photograph and a simple question. And sometimes deeply buried secrets come slipping out of the mouths of elderly relatives who can't remember what was confidential and what is public knowledge anymore. That is what happened to Fred Nicora, who at the age of 41 was minding his own business at a family reunion when a favorite aunt mentioned his own adoption, which he had no idea about. Thus began a journey of history and identity that became his new book, Forbidden Roots, a memoir of late discovery adoption. It is available now on Amazon and other major booksellers like Barnes & Noble. And it's on his website. There is a lot of talk in our community about how wonky the men-to-women ratio is. Like, statistically, we all know that MPE DNA discoveries of all kinds must be happening to all people. But it seems like the community is, is heavily, heavily populated by women. So that's kind of a constant discussion. But anyway, the point is, the point is, I just have to say, I feel like I have a lot of men this season on my podcast. Um, I'm kind of proud of that. Anyway, I was thrilled to sit down with Fred a few months ago and get his perspective on his DNA discovery journey. Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah, I can totally see you now. Okay. I, was... I, I thought I hit start video before, but I guess I didn't. Oh, I so. was really, um, I was, I was really prepared to go in, to go in blind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Kind of nicer when you can see the other person. It is, make... it is. But I was like, I can do this. Hi. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm so glad we got to connect. Yes. Yes. Very nice. So what, uh, what is the gist of what you'd like this to be on? Well, it can be you know, any part of your, any part of your late discovery adoption journey that you want to talk about. Um, okay. sometimes a lot of people come in and we just kind of, I just say like, what happened? And they, they give me the rundown. You wrote a book. So I, of course, want to, I want to talk about that. So if you don't want to tell me the whole story, because we don't want to give it all away because it's in the book. Okay. Okay. Wait, before we start, tell me how to pronounce your last name. Nicora. Nicora. Okay which is just how it looks, but what if it was like Nicara? Pretty straightforward. Forbidden Roots. There we go. And is Forbidden Roots available now? Yes, it is. It's available both on Amazon um, as, as well as Barnes and Noble. And then I'll, of course, like put it up on the social media and make sure it's, I have a link on my website to all the book, to all books that people talk about and Great. So I'll make sure everything is linked and available and there should be no excuses for anybody to not be able to find it. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. So tell me what happened. All right. Yeah. I am a late discovery adoptee. So for myself, 
Um, in the year 2000, at the age of 41, I was attending a large family gathering. Uh, both my parents had passed away at that time already. So it was my extended, it was my mother's uh, brother who would have been my uncle. Uh, they were twin uncles. Uh, there was about 200, maybe 300 people at this gathering, large banquet hall. And while we were kind of assembling ourselves at one of the tables and I went off to uh, the bar to get beverages for the family, and came back and my uh, wife looked at me and said, actually, she asked if an aunt was a different one. And, and I knew what she meant by it because she was referring to uh, Alice and Alice is known to get things confused. I was actually Lydia who's sharp as a tack. And, mm. and I, uh, I said, no, that's Lydia. Why? And she said, she said the weirdest thing to me. And I said, what'd she say to you? And she said, I've known Freddie since the day they adopted him. And I said, what? 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 <laughs> and I went over to Lydia and, you know, Freddie, your children are beautiful. You know, she was explaining, you know, just reading me very nicely. And I just said, did you just tell Sylvia you've known me since the day I was adopted? And she just froze. I felt sorry for her. She was well into her 80s. And I didn't know if she was going to make it through that one. I, I really didn't. Sure. Feel for her, but Sure. Not a, not a malicious mistake by any means. No, no, not at all. And uh, as it turned out, virtually everybody in that room, except for me and my family knew that it was, you know, known within the family, within different social circles. So uh, it was quite a shock. And uh, for me, the explosion was that primary finding out. Uh, and then as that was on a weekend and then Monday, actually, I called the state and keep in mind, I was coming at it from the perspective of a person that didn't know anything about adoption. I had no idea that there were different rules regarding legal access to documents for adoptees versus the general population. How would you know, or why would you know that? That doesn't, you know, unless you were involved in adoption. Yeah. So going into that, I, I was mortified when they told me that I had no legal right to find out who I was. Wow. Yeah. For me at that time, that was kind of the second blow. The first blow was like, oh my God, everybody around me has known this. And I felt a great sense of betrayal. Um, there was a lot of anger in the beginning. And <laughs> I have questions about this family reunion. <laughs> Can we go back to that moment? So for Aunt Lydia realizes what kind of mistake she's made yeah and and then did you turn to others in that moment and say i'm a i'm adopted like how did you find out that everybody knew or what what did the rest of the evening look like for you uh the evening got curtailed pretty quickly because i the first thing i did was one of the guests of honor was my uncle bob and uncle bob was the one i was probably closest to in that family. And I had worked a lot with Uncle Bob. I'd worked for him when I was young. Um, I was an architect for a while. I designed his house. So I had a, you know, to, to me, he was, you know, a significant person of, you know, who I trusted. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I cornered him in the bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, you know, it was like, hey, Lydia just said that I'm adopted. Is that right? And he had basically the same reaction. His face froze. Uh, he said, yeah, yes. And, and at that point, I realized everybody knew. And so I just gathered my family and we got in our family van and we headed toward home. Yeah. 
party pooper. <laughs> like, that's a real buzzkill. I, I know. You know, in retrospect, it's too bad. I, you know, here they had rented out this big banquet hall and um, I did kind of kill that party. I'm going to tell you that much, but it wasn't the first time I managed to silence a room. Mm. So they knew. So, okay. So when you left, they knew. Um, all right. So then it's Monday. And yes. now, now you're being told you have no rights to your documentation. Correct. And that, quite honestly, that, um, you know, there, there was a bit of an education that the state had to give to me in terms of getting me to come around and understand that my assumptions were false, that even though I was the same person, that I didn't necessarily have the same rights that I did, even though I did, because I was always adopted, but I wasn't aware of it. So there, there was an education process by the state, making sure I understood uh, the new rules that I was playing under. And for me, there was, so I, I would say there was a loss of my family initially, and th that anger clouded a lot, um, and it lasted for a while. And um, I, I tried to rekindle relationships. They did too. And, and today there's, you know, I'd say about 50% of them of those that are still alive, because um, mm -hmm. a lot of them are older or were older at the time, um, you know, are, are still intact. But a lot of them have drifted off and faded away. A lot of people, a lot of the extended family just really didn't want to deal with it. They just wanted me to pretend it never happened, that I never found out. Um, some of them have come around and have been somewhat more supportive. Mm. Uh, and in the, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, kind of maintain a relationship. And, and for those that haven't been able to do that, you know, I've, I've just basically trimmed them out. I, um, I'm not going to pretend I don't know, you know, that's just not part of who I am today. Right. That's what you can't, that, you can't put that back in the box. No, it, it doesn't go back in the box very well. So that was, you know, that, that was the initial blast. And then the second blast came that Monday when the state informed me, you know, who I was. And um, I, I really all of a sudden saw life from a whole different perspective. You know, my foundation had been completely washed away. Um, if you think about how you formulate your value system and who you put your, how you put your identity together, so much of it's based on the trust of who you grow up around. And um, when, when, you know, and, and I'm talking to you in, in the crowd here, you know, that people understand what I'm saying, you know, you lose mm -hmm. that and it, it doesn't just affect how you see yourself in terms of that family, but it affects how you see yourself as a total person. Cause suddenly I was a different person, you know, and as I found out more, I actually two and a half months, I still to this day don't know where I was the first two and a half months of my life. The state won't tell me that, you know, I, as far as I can tell, I was probably in foster care uh, someplace until my uh, adoption placement, but um, I still don't have access to those records, uh, which still gets under my skin, quite honestly, they're my records. Why can yeah. somebody on the other end of a phone look at those records and not tell me what they're seeing, you know? It's so, it's so weird. <laughs> I don't have another word for it. It's just so weird. Yeah. So for me, there were, there were two aspects to it. You know, loss of family was the first aspect. And then I'd say the second was coming to terms with that I was of a different class, that I didn't enjoy the same rights that I had previously. Now, it's easy to, 
to say, you know, what in life actually changed? I still had a wife. I still had kids. You know, I still was doing my job. You can't just check out of life when something like that happens. You you go on and you hold it together. But at the same time, I, I had to reformulate a whole new identity. I had to figure out who I was. And that, uh, and I, I know we've talked a little bit about it. I have a book out, Forbidden Roots. And that's really what the book is about. It's about looking at that six years from the time I found out until the time I brought some initial resolution to it. And a lot of that was trying to find and put together a different foundation that I that could hold up the rest of the house because the old one was gone. And to reiterate or remind myself and everyone, you're, both your parents have passed away at this point. So you yes. have no, so you can't get any first person story about what happened. No, that's, it, that, it was, that's impossible. So everything has to be second degree. Yeah. And that night after I found out, um, I actually spent uh, a fair amount of time driving around to different people's houses, um, just trying to get, I'll say the element of surprise and see if fragments of truth would spill out. And I did find out a few things. I found out that actually through my dad's sister, and whether it's true or not, I have no way of telling, but she indicated that my father, when he was growing up in the 30s, his parents divorced. Uh, they fell apart as a family. As a result, he ended up in the county orphanage for a while. Uh, he was later pulled in by his, sis his older sister and raised by her and uh, her husband. But he, he didn't want me to face the horrors of being an orphan, theoretically. So as yeah. a result, he decided it would be better to keep the secret. Right. And if you go back to 1959, it wasn't the, the most popular vein of thought, but there, there were a substantial amount of people that believed that babies were a tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. You just program them as you want, and they'll become part of your family. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Except not. But absolutely, that was the that was the that was the belief. You know, even if I look at you know, because my parents were good to me. I had I was raised in a good family. Um, I, I know a lot of people will take three steps back and say, but they didn't tell you who you were. You know, mm -hmm. how can you say they were good? You know, other aspect, every other aspect I'd say of the relationship, you know, that I had with them was pretty normal. You know, I was raised an only child, so. You know, that was a, that that should have been a clue. I had older parents. I was an only child. If you looked around in the 50s and 60s, the only families with older parents and only children, you know, were were adopted. Families. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we mm -hmm. I just didn't know it at the time. But the, but they really were good to me, you know, and so I don't look at and, and I'll say there was an initial period where I had a hard time seeing that. And as time's gone on, you know, it's been over 20 years, 23 years since I first discovered, you know, I've come to terms. I'm, I'm a parent of three. My, my grown children could create laundry lists of the mistakes I've made and, and how it's damaged and hurt them. And I regret that. And I, you know, can't help but thinking perhaps at some point my parents, you know, saw that this wasn't going to work very well. Um, I don't think they knew how to turn the train around. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. I think that's so important to remember how much time allows us to, to, to time and distance gives us the opportunity for uh, perspective and empathy, despite anger. Anger, you have every right to feel angry, and it's 
it's I want to say it's nice to remember, but I don't want to suggest there's a a behavior that someone should forgive or should get empathy, but it's it's maybe interesting or a good reminder. Yeah, and I, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. So I, I wrote most of the book between 2006 through 2007. In 2008, I became acutely aware <laughs> through the help of the law uh, that I had an alcohol problem and that needed to be addressed. I was an alcoholic. And I would say, if I look at my drinking pattern, I was probably on the high end of social drinking up through the point of discovery. And once I discovered it accelerated, unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, I lost control of it is what happened. And I, I can look back and I'll say that that was probably for a few different, you know, obviously that was something bigger than my little head could really handle. And I didn't really have good coping mechanisms in place. I didn't have healthy coping mechanisms in place. I really had no spiritual life. Um, I, I was just going through life, you know, kind of enjoying what I could and, you know, kind of there for the ride. Um, and what I would say is that that shell shock and then my inability to really cope with it, I'd say facilitated a problem that was probably genetically there already, but that was definitely something that was like throwing gasoline on a fire. So part of, you know, what I ended up going through then, because I did go through outpatient counseling, I went through years of AA, I've, you know, been sober now a little over 13 years. So um, I'll say I, I consciously kind of stepped back from the adoptee and adoption communities when I was focusing on stopping drinking because mm -hmm. I knew it would be triggers. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever been, I'm sure you've been on some of the social media boards, but there's plenty of anger out there. Yeah. Um, and that was something I was trying to avoid. I, uh, it became a life and death issue for me. If I didn't mm -hmm. avoid it, it was going to take me down. So as a result, you know, going through, I'll say that process of coming to terms with what I need to do to survive. I, you know, ha I came, I came to realize I have to be, I'll say the, the caretaker of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, that in a loving regard, you know, if emotionally I'm getting overtaxed, then I have to take the steps to put something in place that will allow, I'll say a heal period, you know, not necessarily dive further or dive deeper or, you know, kind of get more entrenched in it. Um, and that was a hard lesson learned. So some of pulling, I'll say back through all of that is what had then got me to a point too, where I could start to say, you know, I need to look at this in the context of the total picture, not just that explosive point in time that until the dust cleared, I couldn't see really anything around it. Right. The betrayal didn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. But it's but it takes work, I think, maybe harder for some than others to understand what I mean by that or, or you, you know, or, or to take the breath to think about it. Yeah. And for me, having that, I'll say the the double loaded shotgun at my head, my head, which is the alcoholism, um, there, there was a motivator to really try and figure out how to not let it ruin my life. Hmm. Because it very well could have. Sure. And I think some people, it, it will, and it does. But, um, you know, I, I guess at that point, I just decided I wanted to live. And I want, you know, I had kids. I had young kids. Um, you know, the last thing I wanted to do is then become the world's worst parent. You know, just, right. you know, fall off the cliff there. So Wouldn't that have been ironic? 
And I did do a lot of digging. And, um, you know, I it, it occurs early in the book, so it's not a big deal. But the um, I, I did go through the reunion process and um, through the state of Wisconsin. That's where I'm at, the state of Wisconsin. The good news is there's currently a bill up. You know, it looks like it's going to take a year or so before it even potentially comes up for a vote. But um, and hopefully it can get legs. Hopefully it'll head in the right direction. Uh, to open up the birth records in Wisconsin, which would be great because the current system, which is the system I went through, I had to, um, first of all, get the redacted uh, history file. Uh-huh. Once I went through that, I could write a letter to my biological mother asking her to release my identity, and I had to explain why I wanted my identity released. Um, that was handed over to the state. The state then in turn called my biological mother, read her the letter. If she declined, I had to wait five years before I could apply again. If she accepted, <laughs> then I could contact her. Um, but after that five years, if I would have applied again and she declined, it was terminal. I was not allowed to pursue anymore. So that was a high stakes letter. Yeah. Um, and I'll say that was another process where it was very dehumanizing, interfacing with the state. Here I am, you know, I'll say emotionally about as vulnerable as I've ever been. And I'm working with this voice on the other end of the phone, giving her the letter that is going to make or break my life. At least that's how it felt at that time. And um, I think it also just mortified me that somebody else at the age of 41, somebody else still held that power over me to either release or not release my identity. And, and that was, it was shocking. Um, but it worked out and I did find her, uh, we did have a reunion. And what I would say is she went through, you know, pregnancy as an unwed mother in 1958 and 59. It was a very conservative, very harsh period. Uh, socially, she felt she just faced a lot of shame. She went away to a work wage home where she was away from home for about six months, gave birth. When she came back, she was told, tell everybody you you were in Europe. And you just forget about this. It never happened. And um, she really never throughout the rest of her life could let go of that shame. She had a hard time with that. And even when we were, you know, in reunion, um, if we would meet at a restaurant, I needed to go in the back door, sit at a table. She would come in the front door and find me. She didn't want people to be seen with me. Uh (laughs) Afraid people would find out. She was loving in her own way. She was kind to me. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to her funeral. She was afraid people would find out. Too embarrassing. Um, oh, my God. Too shameful. I mean, way deeper yeah. than embarrassment, right? Shame. Yeah, and then If you start to look at the whole process, you know, that the state worked through, it reinforced the shame. You know, I mean, right. it, it basically came to her and said, hey, you've been through this horrific event. And if you still want to keep it buried because you really should, go ahead, you know, and um, I think that's we have all the tool. tools in place. <laughs> we've got we've got a system for hiding this. Yeah, so I did find her. She did tell me who my biological father was. Unfortunately, he passed away um, about seven years before um, I found out I was adopted. So I wasn't able to meet him. But um, and a lot of the book is coming to terms with that, finding out what I can about him, um, trying to understand who he was as a person, understand um what happened to his life? Find out how many brothers and sisters I have. <laughs> I was raised an only kid. 
I have a lot of half siblings. I have three from one and four from the other. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, unfortunately, two of them had passed away before I could even meet them. Um, I've, I've met in, I uh, have an all right relationship with my half sister on her side. Um, I have uh, a half brother on his side. And then just nine months ago, uh, the shocking surprise, and this is, this kind of comes up the, the other side of the alley is I lost a lot of trust when I went through this. So as a result, you know, as I, I did both 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and I did verify that she indeed was my biological mother, and I did indeed verify he was my biological father. Um, and it was interesting. So just as I'm getting ready to release the book, and this was about nine months ago, do the final sign-off on the printed copy, I get an email from somebody in Ancestry indicating that we're first cousins and she can't figure out who I am. Now the, the missing clue piece is her father was adopted and he never pursued finding out who he was. So she wondered if there was a possible connection there by doing the cross checkings and figuring out who he was and who else she was related to and how close turns out he was a half brother of mine. He was born seven months before I was born and was given up for adoption as well. Oh, wow. Of yours, a half brother of yours. I gained another half brother. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Actually the exciting part, um, next weekend, not this coming up weekend, but next weekend I'm going up to Minneapolis. That's where the woman lives. Uh, and I'm going to meet her. She's, so she's like, your niece. She's, she's your my niece, niece, right? Yeah. Like your yeah. uh, uncle Fred. Uncle excited. Fred. Okay, cool. Thanks. Oh, that's going to be fun. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make assumptions because I know these things can be fraught. So I don't want to just say like, that's going to be fun. But uh, you look like you're looking forward to it. So I want it to be a nice time. Yeah, You know, I've, again, I've, I've been in this for 20 years. So yeah. um, I would, I, you know, everybody gets really excited about reunions and you need to get excited about reunions because it's, it's a place you can find a lot of answers. It's a place you can start to piece together the puzzle that is you, that you can understand yourself better and under, by understanding where you came from. And, um, but I can honestly say, I, you know, going into reunions and then experiencing reunions, they're, they're a challenge. You know, I mean, if you look at it, even siblings, you, as a late discovery adopter, if you're later in life when you're searching, you're meeting these people for the first time. Yeah, you might share genetic material, but there's no history there. They grew up in one environment. You grew up in a different environment. All your, you know, experiences through life are different. So while I've seen a couple, and I'm going to say I've seen a lot, mm -hmm. while I've seen a couple that have been like, oh, my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me, the vast majority, I, I would say, there needs to be some adjustment in terms of expectations and the reality of what they turn out to be. Now, what I would also say is that if you give them time, um, they can grow into good relationships. But for me, at least, there there was no magic proof. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Magic no, I appreciate your honesty. I think that's um, so. It's a good reality check. That that yeah. So I you know I I I think at this point you know, going to meet her. I'm excited to meet her. I want to find out, you know, about uh, her father, my half brother. Mm -hmm. um, 
pretty excited. Actually, what happened is we were supposed to be up there a few weeks ago. Um, it just got postponed. But I think um, her mother is going to join us, which would be my brother's ex-wife. Okay. So, talk about shedding some insight. This yeah, be- you might really get to understand more about him um, than in, than other than than some other people when you don't have people that close. Correct. Yep. I'm looking forward to it. So is he your brother on your dad's side or your mom's yes. side? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he he, yeah. he was a, yeah. a prolific yeah. man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if there's more out there. You know, right. that's what I sure there could be. You know, and it gets interesting because I, you know, the other thing I'll say is um I when I when I went into recovery, when I was really focused on um getting sober and staying sober. I, I, I did do some adoption work with counselors, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of starting to unpack some of the big pieces, um, especially as it pertained to the LDA stuff. But, you know, there, there was still a fair amount that, that needed work. Um, since I've reemerged, and I'd say I've, I've been involved in the adoption community now, probably about a year or so, maybe a little more. Um, I'll say one thing, it's just fascinating how much it's exploded since the year 2000. Holy smokes. Um, you know, between Facebook pages, podcasts, there's podcasts all over the place. And I it's know. Awesome. There are all these stories and each story I hear makes me feel a little less like a freak. You know, it's awesome, you know. Um, and as I've connected with other LDAs and other adoptees, you know, initially I, I thought, LDAs are such an odd bird. You know, we don't have anything in common with anybody, but the reality is we have a lot in common with the other adoptees out there. Um, It's a a weird twist to our story, you know, and as I'm running into, you know, MPEs and NPEs, it's all basically the same thing where we're, we're finding out, or maybe we knew from early on, but at some point we just become acutely aware that um, there's more to us than what we were originally taught to perceive. And we need to understand who, what that part of us is. So we do the research. So, so pretty exciting. I'd, I'd say some of those connections that I'm making with some of those other adoptees, um, in a way they, they almost kind of make up for some of those lost sibling relationships mm-hmm. um, because I do share common experiences. I was and just about to them, say, because there actually might be a more intimate shared history. Yeah. And, and I'm not afraid to talk to him about the weird thoughts that go through my head. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. There's a group of four guys right now that we've kind of developed this little chat group and uh, you know, the questions we're just mulling over like, you know, okay. With genetic mirroring, if you find your father later, you know, does like the mirroring go on hyperspeed and do you try and catch up? You know, I mean, these are things you're not going to talk about to other people in normal right. conversation because right. they have no context. They don't quite get it, you know? So it's, it's great to just connect with other people that are mm-hmm. in I'll say, similar situations of surprises later in life, or just maybe they've known their adoption. And then, you know, I think the term today is popped out of the fog. They came out mm-hmm. of the fog and suddenly they realized like, holy buckets, this isn't me. I got to figure out who me really is because this skin isn't fitting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. The yeah. The power of community that gets formed around common experience is so powerful, uh, which, which, which lends itself to, to the argument that we just, 
you've got to talk about it so that other people know that they're not alone. Yeah. And that's my goal. Yeah. And that's probably one of the chief reasons I wrote the book was when I discovered there was nothing out there and and I'll say even, um, you know, and I, I mean this in all due respect, you know, the adoption NPE and MPE communities are fairly heavily dominated by females. There's not as many, there's not as many males out there. Yeah. And I want to help. I want to see the male voice get out there. You that's, know? Um, I think that's so important, actually, to talk about. And there are there's a few other people bring, bringing that up, but there's yeah. a major uh, demographic yeah, in, in, inequality just, just in who's being represented. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, as even I, I meet with these other guys, you know, um, and talk to them, um, it, it's fun to explore, you know, how as a male has, has this impact, mm-hmm. you know, I, I relate to you. I, I, so I assume you're an NPE. I'm an NPE. Right. So, right. So, yeah. So not, not adopted. My mom is my mom, but discovered that my dad is not my biological dad. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure that was a shock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I relate to that. I understand that, you know, so I relate to your community. I relate to the adoptee community. Um, and I think the more that we can start to knit these communities together, the more we can start to act as what I'd call a common force. Mm-hmm. If you start thinking about it, and I look at mainly the adoptee numbers, there's six, six, uh, somewhere between six and seven million adoptees in the country. You know, that's a significant amount of people. Now, let's start throwing on top of that the NPEs, the MPEs. You know, we're all basically after the same thing. We we want the right to find out who we are. And we believe that's, I'd say, a basic human right. It sounds like it. it. Sounds like it to me. I don't think anyone has thought about it. You don't, you know, I think probably most people don't think about it until they're denied. Correct. Right? Like, yeah, I think so. how often had you mold that over before that phone call? Yeah, it was interesting. There was a, a friend of mine. Um, for a while, I was an architect up in uh, Minneapolis. And I worked at a large firm up there. And the guy in, at the table next to me, uh, he was adopted. And this was back in, I'm going to say, like, 89, uh, maybe 91, 92, somewhere in that time frame. Um, and I remember his name's Bob. And he's still a good friend of mine. And um, Bob was, at that time, he was adopted. And he was trying to find his birth mother. Um, he was complicated. He was raised in Illinois. He was living in Minnesota. And he was actually adopted out of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right. So he was crossing state lines and, and just, you know, and I remember, um, you know, I, I would ask him periodically because hey, he told me about it after I asked one day. And, you know, when I found out, because I didn't find out till years later that I was adopted, and I, he was the first person I called. Mom, I'm adopted. <laughs> you know, what? Help me. What does, what do I do with this? You know? Oh my gosh, that um, must have been such an amazing phone call for him. For you to hear from you, like I would love to have been in his brain in that moment. Yeah, I'm sure he found it. But it was interesting because he told me something. He said, you know, it's it's bizarre, but he goes, there's never been anybody else that's shown as much interest in my adoption related stuff as you. You know, you would ask uh-huh. about it. And you you know, like actually, because usually if I tell somebody like, like I'm searching for my birth mom, they go, oh, that's nice. Have a good day. You know, what do you do with it? Right, but you always yeah, I always have interest, huh? That's interesting. That is really interesting to wonder what that was about. 
you know, and I'm going to say that, okay, so we, we didn't cover the, you know, before I found out I was adopted, I always in life struggled with identity and couldn't figure out what wasn't right. I knew something wasn't right. I knew something wasn't right. And I just couldn't figure it out. You know, it, um, it made me think that I was somehow broken, mm-hmm. that there was a mental defect going on that just, I had to hide, you know, I had to hide it from everybody because mm-hmm. no, you know, I didn't know what was wrong, but yet I could tell something was wrong. So I would, I would venture down the path that at some level I was aware, you sure. know, there was, there was also another story that my mother started to tell me when I was uh, very young and I didn't take to it well. So she just backed off and buried it, you know, and, um, you know, did I, did I put the pieces together at that point? So was there a layer that I was aware of? I don't know. You know, I'll never know the answer to that, but at the same time, I'll say I wouldn't be surprised if I, I was at some level, some subconscious level. Yeah, sure. Cause it made sense. Once I found out, it all made sense. And mm-hmm. I, I haven't struggled with that since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a common, such a common thread among adoptees or NPEs, you know, this, this feeling of not quite fitting in and then all these pieces just falling together um, with the, with the information. What was your biggest surprise writing the book? You know, as I wrote the book um, and the book follows a chronological order. So it, it takes the reader from that night of discovery all the way up six years uh, past that. And I'm not going to tell you what the significant resolution to it was, but I did bring a, a fair amount of, I'll say, acceptance uh, to it. And um, I will say I, I, I managed to bury the past. There, there's a little clue there. Oh, okay. All right. For anybody curious, go check out the book, Forbidden Roots. We'll all find out together. What I will say is, as I was researching families, because that's that's really what I was after. I was trying to figure out, you know, who these families were. Now, my birth mother, you know, made it very clear. Nobody could ever find out that she was my mother. And so she kind of kept me off guards from her family. She let me meet my siblings. But beyond that, there was to be no contact, no communication, you know, and in the letter I wrote, I indicated I'm comfortable with whatever level of, you know, confidentiality Mm -hmm. you require. What else was I going to say? You know, that was, that was kind of my deal with the devil, you know, I mean, and that was the thing that held me in check, you know, for the the rest of the time that she was born. And even in the book, her name's masked. The town she's from is masked. Everything's masked that could identify her, you know, so I'm still holding to that word. I, I wish she would have been able to get around that shame. I wish she would have been able to heal from it. You know, I think that would have allowed her a whole different perspective on life, but you know, she was, she was chained to it. So I did dive deep into my biological father's family and his was initially a very hard family to find. But once I found out who they were, um, both his mother and his father came from roots that tied all the way back to the, mid 1600s in in this country. So heavy English um, on his side, heavy Norwegian on her side, um, and some Scottish on his side. Um, And his family is just fascinating. I've got my grandmother, his mother, um, two of her siblings are in the Grand Old Opry Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Littered throughout. I mean, and I branch off into many different 
veins of country western music there there's i've got a lot of relatives out there they were a, a show performing family um there's another route that actually ties back to obama <laughs> i'm not it's not close enough that i'd call him and say hey cuz you know how you doing uh-huh, uh-huh. welcome me to the family you know yeah. but at the same time there were there were so many things i found out about that family and tracing it through the revolutionary war through the mexican-american war through the civil war um but was very very interesting is um my great 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 grandfather started a farmstead right after the civil war he fought in the civil war he was on the north because they were in missouri at the time and they were actually cousins of his that were fighting on the south for the south because missouri was a split state i was just about so to I, say i feel like missouri is right on the edge there <laughs> okay. yeah so it was kind of fascinating because there were literally these you know, cousins fighting against each other in the Civil War, you know, and then when William Jasper returned back to uh, northern Missouri, he uh, settled on a farmstead, which is actually the same farmstead my father was raised on. Um, and I, I started to think about it. And I thought, you know, it, my relationship to William Jasper Brookshire, which is my great, great, great grandfather, isn't any different than anybody else walking the streets. They were dead long before we were born. But why can't I honor him? Why can't I learn from him? Why can't I incorporate who he was into me as everybody else can? I don't have an answer for you. I think you should be able to. Yeah. So that was my biggest revelation in writing the book. As I started to, I'll say, meet all these different people that were in my tree, you know, that, and fortunately, the family's very well documented. There, I, I was able to get books on it. There were websites. Um, actually, the way that I finally became connected, um, because I just couldn't break through to find out who was in. I, I was actually looking for my father's half brother. I found out he had a half brother, um, and I was trying to find him because he was the person that signed my father's death certificate. So I figured he knew oh. he had the best shot of knowing what happened to him after. Mm -hmm. um, I knew he had two boys after he actually got married in Chicago, and then he had two boys through another marriage, and then uh, his wife left him. Um, but he would have been, I think, probably 38, 39 at the time. So I didn't. I thought maybe there's more out there. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Didn't go and another family. Um, so I went on one of the the. Um, it was the uh, descendants of Joseph Owen's website. And I went on there and I posted, I had a picture I had gotten from my aunt Ina, who was in Iowa. She was awesome. Um, she held a family reunion for me. Oh, that's so sweet. But she didn't know what happened to uh, uh, my father either. So I posted a picture on this website of uh, my father sitting next or with my uh, grandmother and just said, um, this is my father and my grandmother in, and I mean, I said some year and sure enough, within, I'd say 20 minutes, somebody shot me a message. Who are you? That's my mother. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was then the connection that finally got me to connect. And That's so cool. So this really gave you the whole experience as well as an identity and existential journey for you also got you this, you sort of got the research bug the genealogy, uh, I don't know what they call it, the bug that <laughs> you just got. Yeah. It just sounds like you have really lots of interesting discoveries. So uh, it makes sense 
to me that you would as as you un dug deeper that you would and found cool things you would keep going you want to hear the craziest story that happened on in the dis and it's in the book but i'll, I'll give you this piece so I did connect with Ron Bracken, who is my uncle, who I have a great relationship with. He's awesome. He's been awesome. I met with him several times. I've actually, I went and I stayed with him in Texas because he was the one that held the final belongings of my father. Oh, wow. And uh, they were in a storage shed in San Antonio, Texas. So I took a trip down to Texas and um, got them from him. And here, here's what gets crazy. Are you ready for this? So keep in mind, my biological mother told my biological father that she was pregnant. He didn't have a good reaction. She didn't like that he didn't have a good reaction. They split up. She gave me up for adoption. He never knew if I was a boy or a girl. He wouldn't have known what she named me, which was Stephen Walter. Oh. Obviously, I'm Fred Nicorna today, not Stephen Walter. So I, I went down to Texas. I... Um, my father was an avid bowler, I found out. And uh, as I was digging through his, you know, I, I actually waited till the following morning when everybody was sleeping before I dug through the box because I was afraid it was going to be what I'd call a, an emotional landmine. Sure. And I came across his bowling bag. So I open his bowling bag and pull out his bowling ball. Guess what the name on the bowling ball is? Your name. Fred. Whoa. Yeah, it was it was the Twilight Zone meets Texas. Yeah. It's a million dollar mystery. Wow. That is really cool. I mean, that's just like a short film right there. You got yourself <laughs> a like basically a Twilight Zone episode, I guess, is what what yeah, is what we're saying. Yeah. Wow. That's so and cool I'll say we, there were a lot of Twilight Zone moments, you know, going through it. And um you know, I can honestly say when I look back, okay, if I if I would be up with God designing the perfect life I could walk into, would I have made myself adopted? Probably not. Would I have made myself a late discovery adoptee? Probably not. Um, but I can say at this point, looking back on it, man, what an interesting life. What an interesting twist. I'm so glad that I was able to actually meet there's there are phenomenal people in the adoption and adoptee and mpe communities um we, we've gone through some trials you know I'd, and there's there's one person that you know it's ingrained in my head you know i i was saying you know like adoptees are amazingly resilient people and he just said yeah i'm so effing sick of being resilient though <laughs> right yeah could, could you just yeah. the universe just lay off for a minute yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is so cool. This has just been great, Fred. Is there anything that you wished I'd asked you that you wanted to talk about? Um, you know, probably my biggest concern today, you know, if I look at it, what what do I really want to see happen? You know, because I'm at the point where um what can I do to improve the situation? You know, yeah, that's that's yeah. in my head today. How do I make this better? And really my fundamental spear i think the the message i've been giving the mission i've been given to carry out is help get laws caught up because today the laws are ridiculous and so i i guess i would encourage anybody out there um you know if you're in a state that currently has legislation going up make sure you you, you write your senator you write your assemblyman try and get that ball moving and try and get it done because i think we're on the cusp of 
some big changes. Um, if you start looking at the ability of people to piece together the information through the DNA data, databases, you know, the option is either the law catches up and grants everybody vital statistics at, you know, of how they were born, who they were born to and who they are, or people are going to go on these websites and it's not just going to be the person, the birth mother finding out, it's going to be every second cousin, every third aunt, every distant relative that they're plowing through on the way to figure this stuff out because there's no other way to do it. Yeah. So if you really want to, I'll say, be respectful of the people that I think and, and I'm going to say the false pretense of who this is protecting. Um, I, I think truth and transparency is the way to go, you know? So that's kind of, I'd say my overriding message, get involved, you know, right. Try and try and be a catalyst in, in your own community. The other thing I'd say is all these different communities that are running into these restrictive environments, allowing them access to identity. I think we need to, bond together and figure out how to become one, a single mobilized force, mm -hmm. as opposed to a bunch of voices um, mm -hmm. that are independently, um, I'm just going to say, infighting way too much. Sometimes I feel like I've, I've found the biggest dysfunctional family, because <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of mudslinging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. People are very passionate. More unification is is absolutely needed across the board. So, do, do you work when you when you're thinking about legislation and that kind of stuff and that information? If anybody wanted to know more about that or get involved, do you point them to Right to Know, or do you have other places that you? I I think Right to Know is a great resource. You know, so if you want to start feeling around um, on my website, I've got a resource page, uh, and on that resource page, uh, Right to Know is one of the links I mm -hmm. connect to. Um, and they're all active links. So if you go to that, if you go to frednacora.com and then go to the resource page, um, you'll find a lot of valuable links. Um, there's, you know, my materials on there too. So any of the webinars or any of the podcasts that I've done are, are also found there. Um, but there's a lot of really great groups. There's a lot of good Facebook groups you can get start to get involved with. Um, some are action oriented groups. I'd say others are more emotional support groups. Um, you know, and, and I'd say be careful because it, it is easy to kind of get sucked down into that cesspool of anger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I deeply feel for anybody that's stuck there. I, I get it. I've been there. I know how hard it is. Um, find counseling, <laughs> find some ways to, you know, help yourself, you know, move forward. One of the biggest healing things that I found for myself, you know, and, and I'm, I want you to read my book. So go read my book, but read everybody else's book out. There's a lot of books. Yeah. And even birth mothers. I've been reading birth mothers books. You know, it gives me insight into how they're feeling. And I think that can help us bring us together too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More empathy, more diversity of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will have all of this up on my website under my resources as well. And I also have a section on my website um, for anybody looking that is also a link just to everybody, the books that are on my show. So you can find Fred's website and his book uh, on my website. And I'll also have all this stuff up on social media.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm so grateful there are men out there like Fred who are willing to talk about the ways that a DNA discovery affected him. Uh, I'm grateful to everyone who has come on my show. If you want Fred's book, as I've mentioned, head over to frednacora.com or Amazon and grab yourself a copy of Forbidden Roots. Well, this podcast is back in business, I guess. Uh, Or is it? (laughs) April was incredibly busy month for me. Lots of traveling, more than I've ever done. Uh, And I feel like it's inadvertently thrown me into some kind of like minor existential crisis about my life. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What even matters anymore? Why is work so hard? Do we have any more of those good crackers in the kitchen? Why did Margot wake up last night at 3 a.m. and never go back to bed? Is it existential crisis or is it exhaustion? Now it's May. Summer is right around the corner. Uh, I'm still sort of mulling over these questions in my head, but maybe a little less stressfully. I am trying to give myself a break, especially about self-imposed pressures like this podcast. Uh, Will there be an episode next week? I think so. But maybe I don't need to torture myself about it like right this very minute or every minute or any minute, you know? If you are enjoying the podcast or hating the podcast, uh, would you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? This is how we stay alive in the algorithm. And it might only take you one minute, but is extremely valuable to me. Or you could send me an email, although that won't help an algorithm. Uh, My email is eve at everythingsrelativepodcast.com. Find me on all the socials at Everything's Relative Podcast. If you are someone who feels like you really, really appreciate the podcast and you don't want it to end, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. Links to that can be found on my website, which is, as you might have guessed, everythingsrelativepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for being with me in general as we peel back the layers of what DNA even means, uh, why our identity even matters. I hope you come back for more episodes. It's very likely there will be a new one as soon as next week. But maybe not. You're not the boss of me. I can do what I want. In the meantime, I hope you stop and smell the roses. Enjoy your coffee. And never underestimate the power of a full night's sleep. This is Everything's Relative. I'm Eve Sturgis. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. What? <laughs> Fred, you buried the lead there. I'm sorry. You do gluten-free bread and cookies? Yeah, yeah. And I I, uh, go sell at market. So like tomorrow, I've got a Fort Washington winter market I'm going to be selling at. Oh my God, do you do shipping? 
<laughs> so, but but what's awesome is like when I'm when I'm just saturated with the adoption stuff, and it's like I just need my head just needs to decompress a little bit. I can just go bake like 15 loaves of bread, and within no time, I'm out of there. I came up with a killer recipe today. It's a vegan chocolate apricot walnut cookie. Oh my god. 